So they call it a uh, pulpit swap. And uh, Tim does his wrong. So I'm going to show you guys the right way. This is the right way to do it. So we do that, okay? Thank you, right? Am I right? Okay? Because you can't be boot stomping and pounding if it's not in front of you. Um, so PBC, I'm so glad to be here uh, with you. It's an honor for me to be here. I um, want to say just before kind of we get into the sermon that uh, Desert Springs Bible Church was planted in 1977. And they were planted, they met in uh, an elementary school auditorium, Liberty Elementary, for uh, 10 years. Um, and then we got, probably the Lord blessed us with property, and then eventually a building up in uh, North Phoenix in the 80s. Uh, and here's what I want to say. So it was about 40 people, and they gathered, and they got together on Sunday. They pushed the piano around. Uh, they, they, they set up the chairs. They set up the microphones. They set up all the audio equipment. This was 1977, so everything was exponentially larger as it related to technology. Uh, but the, the jeans were tighter also uh, back then, as were the linens. Um, but because of the faithfulness of about 40 people who sacrificed week in and week out, who gave of their time, their energy, and uh, their financial resources, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s uh, with young kids at the time, uh, and they were given of their finances uh, sacrificially, exponentially more sacrificially than, than many people would even imagine. If you just think about the time and in the area, North Phoenix was nothing. I mean, we literally, we were at the edge of civilization. Many of our uh, original members, uh, check this out, had a community phone line, which means you pick up the phone and you see if anyone's on it. And if nobody's on it, then you can place your phone call. So they just, there was literally one line, uh, everything north of Shea. So that was fascinating. But because of their faithfulness, I came to know the Lord. Uh, I came to know the Lord at Desert Springs Bible Church in about 2000, 2001 is when I first started attending that church. And so I am so thankful to those who came before, and I'm so thankful to you. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating is I, I get to spend a lot of time with some of those OGs, the original gangsters who planted Desert Springs Bible Church, and they hate the music, and they complain about, and they, they just do not like some of the aesthetics, and they definitely don't like the fact that I say sucks from the pulpit. That's that's kind of makes it in the list a lot. But they are so honored to be a part of what God has done. And I look forward to you sitting at the table with some young punk 40 years from now, upset about the music and frustrated about the language and the attire, but proud of what the Lord did through PBC and through your faithfulness. And so thank you so much for being faithful. Uh, for those of you that are a part of PBC, I know it's a giant pain a lot of times to be a part of a church plant, but you are a part of God's mission here in North Phoenix spreading the gospel, making the gospel known to people, and thank you so much. And, and you know this as well as anybody, that part of church planting and part of uh, doing something new uh, requires prayer. I mean, we must be a people of prayer, right? Uh, and I love that uh, the series is titled Pray First. That's what it's titled, right? <laughs> you guys tell me. I mean, you go here. I don't go here. What, what, do, we, what do we call it? Dude, I crushed it. Dude, pray first. I was going from memory from what Tim was telling me. Pray first, because we have to be people who pray first. And we also know as uh, those of us who are followers of Christ, and even if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're here just trying to figure this whole Jesus thing out, I'm so glad that you're here today because you get to eavesdrop on us, uh, for those of us who follow after Christ, talk about something that's kind of weird and kind of funny, and it's something that, that many people do, though, but many of us don't understand, and that is we can talk about prayer today. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who are trying this, this PBC thing, trying to get it off the ground, we know that part of being faithful to Christ is 
Part of that involves pain. Part of life is pain, right? I mean, if you haven't experienced pain yet, uh, you're not paying attention. You have experienced pain to one degree or the other. In fact, we come into this world experiencing pain, fear, frustration. And different, there are different types of pain. There's psychological pain, emotional pain, physical pain. And, and you and I know that really physical pain, while horrible, oftentimes is not as bad, not as overwhelming as the emotional or spiritual pain that comes to us in life. Uh, there are some of us here uh, today, I imagine, who are sick. And it's not so much the physical pain that gets to us as much as the fear of the unknown, the pain of wondering what's next, is God still there? Many of us, are, uh, our families are falling apart. We understand that that happens many times. And, and while we wish for the best, there's a pain in not knowing, a pain in the longing. And then there are many of us who feel the pain, the spiritual pain of wondering, is God even there? Maybe we're a person of faith, but we have our doubts. We see things that are going on in the world today and in our lives in particular, and it causes us to wonder, God, are you even there? Are you even with me? Do you even exist? And pain is something that we all feel, and pain is something that God uh, says, when you feel pain, not if, but when you feel pain, pray first. You see, too often what we do is we go to God in prayer after we've already processed things, whether it be frustration, rage, fear, pain, whatever we're feeling, God calls us to, even in the moment, to take it to him raw and unfiltered. And today we have uh, Psalm 3 as our uh, scripture today. It was read just a moment ago. And Psalm 3 is a text that speaks of a person who is feeling physical, family, spiritual, and emotional pain. It's David is the author attributed to this psalm. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to Psalm chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would like one, I believe there's some maybe on the tables, uh, or the, the chairs there. And if you're using a digital device, I'll be using the English standard version today. And in Psalm 3, we have this fascinating episode in which the author David uh, is, is, has taken flight. Uh, what I mean by that is, you guys know these... Um, these chase films, it's like a category of movie. You know what I'm talking about? Like Thelma and Louise uh, or the Bourne uh, series uh, or The Fugitive. Uh, you guys know these movies where, where basically the whole movie is chase. It's somebody chasing after somebody else. Usually there's a, 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 an enemy or something big, something ominous that's coming after a person. The person's running from them, trying to get free. And here we have a chase movie lived out in real life. This is uh, David who fled from his son Absalom. You see it in the uh, text there just above verse 1, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And this, uh, this is the jam. So Absalom murdered his brother Ammon. Ammon was killed by Absalom. Why? That's a great question. Because Ammon... Uh, raped his half-sister Tamar, who was Absalom's full sister. So, you think your family causes you pain. This family is messed up, okay? Can we agree that what's going on here is messed up? Can you say messed up? Messed up. That's so messed up. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I practice biblical family values. Oh, which ones? 
like which part of the Bible are you looking to because this is maybe not what we mean when we say biblical parenting, okay? So you've got Absalom. Now, check it out. Absalom killed Ammon because Ammon raped Tamar. And then uh, David, who's the dad of all these kids, this is a mess, David is really, you know, he's upset about this. He ends up uh, bringing Absalom back. All of this is in 2 Samuel, uh, around chapter 15. He brings Absalom back into his kingdom. Guess what Absalom does? You're never going to guess. He's like, thanks for bringing me back, Pops. Uh, I'm going to take over. And he undermines David's authority to the point to where he basically raises up a force and tries to take the throne by, uh, by military means. And so he is chasing, he and his people are chasing David. So the son, the murderous son, is chasing the father, okay? So you thought Christmas and Thanksgiving was bad with your family. This is when you say it could be worse. This is the worst. David is running from his son, Absalom. So he's got family pain, family crisis. And one of the things I love about this psalm is David doesn't he doesn't self-deceive. He doesn't deceive himself. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't say, you know, uh, it's all going to be okay in the end, and, um, you know, it'll, it'll all work out for good. Uh, it's going to be great, you know. He, he, he's running, and he's afraid. If you look at the text, he says, oh, Lord, how, verse 1, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. What David has here is something that we all need, especially when we go to prayer, and that's this, a sober assessment of reality. You see, there's this uh, weird thing Christians do is we try to, oftentimes we belittle uh, pain and we belittle suffering and we belittle fear. We, we try to make light of it. We try to self-medicate. We try to use cliches and phrases to, to maybe diminish the pain and the fear and say things like it'll all work out in the end or it could be worse. By the way, if you're ever tempted to say the words, it could be worse to somebody, just know this, that's not comforting, right? I, try it at your next meal. Next time someone you love cooks for you, say, hey, you know, it could be worse. I mean, that's not, a, that's not providing comfort and peace, is it? Right? Like it could be worse. Yeah, it could be worse. But that doesn't mean that my suffering, my fear, my pain, my anguish, is, it, it, it doesn't feel bad. It always could be worse, but that doesn't negate the fact that I'm facing down my son who's trying to kill me. And so we as followers of Christ are called to have a sober assessment of reality. Fear and pain are meant to be looked squarely in the eyes and then dealt with. We don't turn aside from it. He says in verse 1, many foes are rising against me. In verse 6, he says, there's many thousands of people that are coming after me. He is worried not only about the family pain that he feels, but he also has this, this impending death thing as he's got thousands of enemies coming after him. He's concerned about his physical well-being. I imagine that he's exhausted from running. And then you see in David in verse 2 this, this interesting statement. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So he's, he's, he's saying, okay, so I've heard the rumors, and everyone out there is basically saying there's no salvation for David. God has left him. And this is especially acute for David because his, uh, the one who came before him, King Saul, who was the dude before David who was king, the scriptures do tell us that God did remove his blessing from Saul. And so David's maybe wondering, you know, because of my sin, has God left me too? Many of us, many of us ask that question. 
Has God left me? God, are you even there? And so David feels physical pain, spiritual pain, and emotional pain. And we see in the Psalms a sober assessment of reality, but the second thing that we see is this expression of how we feel about it. And through our praying, we ought to have a sober assessment of reality, and we ought to go to God with our feelings, with how we feel about the thing. Uh, You can see in David in verses 1 and 2, he says this language of many, many, many. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. And the repetition of that word is meant for us to uh, have a sense of David feeling overwhelmed and fearful. Now, there's two types of fear. There's more than two types of fear, but there's primarily two types of fear. There's the good type of fear that keeps you alive. And then there's something like, that's like a parasitic fear that eats you up. So, so let me uh, do it like this. Um, so there's a good type of fear. Uh, I was driving down the road. Um, last year, it was a rainy day. Phoenicians, do you remember that one day? <laughs> last year when it rained, it was that day. And uh, it was a Tuesday, in fact. And uh, so it was raining on that one day, and I was driving, and I was driving up in the North uh, Valley, kind of further north than where even I'm at, so that it's one-lane roads. And, uh, and I, had, um, I had radio lab on the, on the, on the I was going to say radio, but, you know, digital device being projected through my car audio system. I had radio lab on, and so I'm, but I'm watching. I'm not looking at the thing. I'm watching the road, but I'm, my mind's engaged with the radio lab. And the truck in front of me, the giant truck in front of me, his, uh, his brake lights were the dimmest possible brand you could buy. And so I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't understand what was happening until uh, my mind communicated to my body, that thing has stopped, you have not. And so I, I did what anyone who's born and raised in Phoenix does on a rainy day. I slammed on the brakes, not knowing how water works with the traction and situation. And so I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing me. I'm wanting to stop, but I am not. Now, it, I, I ended up, by the way, I did, I, I went off to the side in a deft maneuver of skill and wonder. Um, whip, got off to the side. Embarrassed and shamed, I pulled off and wept bitterly for hours. What was it at that moment that kept me from slamming in the back of that truck? It was fear, right? Like my whole body was gripped by fear, like fear of like hitting the back of that truck. That's a good type of fear. Fear keeps us alive. But then there's that like 3 a.m. cold sweats, worried about the truck coming into my house and eating me type of fear. Okay? There's that abiding fear, that, that fear that causes one to pace around, that, that literally eats one up, right? Parasitic fear. It's the type of fear that says, God, are, are the rumors true or are, have you left me? Are you even with me? Do you even exist? Are, are you there? It's the 3 a.m. fear that ends up killing us. And here, David feels fear. He feels pain. He understands that Absalom, Absalom is his son, but, but also I, I, I can't help but wonder, did David not feel somehow complicit in what happened between his children? You know, maybe, maybe he felt like he was a bad dad or that he should have kept watch or that maybe, maybe what happened with his children with, with rape and murder, maybe, maybe he's taking on some of that pain as well. I know many of us could relate but within this pain and within this fear, there's also anger. You know, you know those things go together, right? Like, 
when we feel pain, oftentimes we get angry at somebody or something. And when we feel fear, we definitely get angry at somebody or something. Uh, look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, uh, I did want to ask uh, just kind of some questions here about that text. Um, you, it, it, so there's this, this, this thing that people do sometimes in, in the church, especially the American church, and they say, um, they say, oh, I have a life verse. Have you guys ever heard people, can you guys help me out? Have you guys ever heard people say, oh, I have a life verse? It, you guys heard that before? Yeah, it usually means like the favorite verse, the thing I live my life by. You know, I've got it on a bumper sticker. It's on my coffee mug or my notebook or whatever. Um, I just want to let you know that this is actually my life verse. Um, God, break the teeth of my enemies. Yeah. So just to let you know, that's, that's my life verse. Um, I don't have a life verse. Uh, I don't, I don't, in, my, in my industry, there's some things I just don't understand. I don't understand life verses. But if I had one, it would be kick their teeth in, Jesus, amen. Um, <laughs> what is, what, okay, so check this out. Um, so like God uh, sovereignly ordained all things to come to pass, specifically the, the writing of the scriptures. So here, David's writing the scriptures. God uh, keeps it, he maintains it, he inspires it, and he has uh, kept it for us. Do you think God is communicating, this is how you should pray? As if, uh, as if, you know, God's up there like, yo, like, who you want me to break their teeth? I'll break their teeth, yo. I mean, that, that would be a God I would pray to. Many of you do in traffic. You pray to Vinny, the God of the teeth breaking, right? Uh, is, this what, is God saying, hey, I really want you to pray this? Like, this is how you should feel? Is this prescriptive or descriptive, right? So I, I would argue that this is descriptive. I would say that God is inviting us to be honest with him. And I think David here is being honest with God. He's saying, God, I want you to break the teeth of my enemies. As Americans, we're usually, ugh, we're usually taken aback by this. Many times as we read through the scriptures, we're offended. Our sensibilities are offended. And, and we think, uh, kind of uh, interestingly, we, we often think, we, we modern people think that we have a really good grip on our emotions and that we're really emotionally expressive. What a bunch of crap. We're, we're not emotionally expressive. We nuance things to the nth degree, so we're polite and we're nice, and we just don't even know how to express ourselves. Here David goes to the Lord in prayer, completely honest about his feelings. He's like, bust their teeth. And too many of us have that feeling, and we refuse to take it to God in prayer because we think God wants us to butter it up and, and kind of deal with it apart from him. And, and let me just ask you a question. Like, when, when you're not honest with God through prayer, do you think you're legitimately hiding anything from him? As if God's like, I wonder how they really feel. Hmm. I'm the sovereign king and creator of the universe who holds all things together by the word of my power. And I, I literally have woven them together from their mother's room. I, I, I know everything about them, but I'd really, I'm curious. <laughs> God, I'm angry. Oh, I thought you were sad. Like, are you surprising God? Like, are, are you surprising God? Like, by not bringing these things to God, by not just, just raging, a lot of us are like, I can't curse in front of God. Guess what? You're always in front of God. Right, like people, like people, it's weird. Like in my in my industry, in my profession, like people will find out what what I do for a living, which always is miserable. Right, I'm getting my hair cut, and they're like, "What do you do for a living?" I'm like, "Here we go." Like here, here, here it comes. Oh, I'm I'm in communications. Um, right? yeah, what do you do for a living? Oh, um, you know, I'm a I'm a pastor. Oh, I'm sorry for what I said earlier. 
you don't, don't apologize. That's the one, not me. I don't, I don't worry about me. It's like, oh, you know, we're in, a ch- we're in a church. We're in a sanctuary. We can't say these words. Yeah, like everywhere God is, is everywhere, right? You can't outrun him. So, so take those raw emotions of pain, fear, anger, and rage and go to the Lord with him. So pray first. Right? Don't, don't clean it all up and then go to him and be like, you know what, God, I was angry yesterday, but I got it all figured out. Right? Like, go to him first and process it there. Listen, true healing never comes apart from processing these emotions in front of him and with him. And David sets an excellent example here by saying, Lord, save me. You strike the cheek of the wicked. You, cr- you, you just kick my enemy's teeth in, man. Like, go do that. How we feel about it should be brought to the Lord in prayer. So pain is a reality to be engaged with head on. We're not to run from pain. We're not to, you know, intentionally try to bring pain onto ourselves, but we do know that to be living is to experience pain to one degree or the other. And so we go to God with sober assessments of reality. We go to God with our honest, open feedback, how, how we feel about it. But then in the course of prayer, and you'll see this throughout the Psalms, in the course of prayer, we are to remind ourselves of who God is. There's this thing that people do. Um, They say things like, uh, okay, I'm going to pray for you, right? So people are sick. And and you hear it, Christian or not Christian, you you know, thoughts and prayers. Um, You guys ever heard people say that? It's on Facebook all the time, right? Like like fake sympathy, like, oh, thoughts and prayers are with you, Um, you guys hear that? Yeah, I'm always curious. Um, I, I'd really, just to clarify, I'd like to know who you're speaking with. So if I had a, 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 a terminal disease, right? Like if I, if I got the doctor saying to me, like, you're going to die tomorrow, and somebody said, um, hey, I'm going to talk to somebody about that, as if to encourage me, what do I want to know? Come on. Who are you talking to, bro? Like, if you're talking to the dude at McDonald's, that's cool. I'm glad you're sharing it with him, but that doesn't help me. If you're talking to the chief practitioner of the newest uh, healing techniques for my disease, who's over at, you know, Barrows or Mayo Clinic, uh, well, now I care. Now I think, okay, you're doing something for me. You know, thank you for talking to that person. Well, it's the same with prayer. It's like saying, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Okay, to who? And we do things. We say things like, um, well, I'm going to throw it out to the universe. Okay. You get thrown out to the universe. Everything I know about the universe is that it wants me to die. Okay, everything I know, I love thinking about um, uh, the, the, just the immensity of the cosmos. I love the fact that we haven't found the edges of space yet. And we're, we're kind of thinking like maybe there isn't edges of space, which for me is like, wow, like that's awesome. And uh, I love thinking about that. But I also know this, that um, like what it takes for me to live, the universe does not care. It's trying to crush me. Okay. So throwing it out to the universe might not be a great idea for me because the universe might want me dead. So don't talk to the universe on my behalf. We'll just, shh, don't let them know I'm here. Okay? Okay, well, then other people say, they kind of say, like, um, I'm I'm uh, going to talk to the big man upstairs. Oh, is there an obese gentleman who lives above you that can help me? Like, what do you mean, the big man upstairs? Like, what's that? ambiguously defined entity going to do. You know, I want to know who you're talking to. And so when we say I pray, if we're not undergirding that with 
I'm praying to the king and creator of the universe who has given his life for you and for me and who died and on the third day rose from the grave conquering over Satan, sin, and death and who holds the universe together with the word of his power. That's the one that I'm going to on your behalf. Well then, okay, now we're doing something. You see, we need to remind ourselves, who am I praying to? I'm not just praying to some ambiguously defined, you know, sky fairy. I'm praying to the king and creator of the universe. It's interesting. He says at the end, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, not the universe, not a large person who lives on the second floor of my apartment complex, the Lord of the universe. We say, who am I praying to? And in the process of this prayer, he reminds himself. He says this in verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The Lord sustained me. Why did I wake up today? Because the Lord sustained me. He reminds himself, do you see? Again in verse four, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me. Verse six, I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people. Verse seven, you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. He's reminding himself of the power of the Lord. And I want to remind you too, there's this thing that we do, uh, especially around Christmas time, and, and that's that we belittle Jesus. We love Jesus in a manger. We love um, the Ricky Bobby Jesus. You guys remember that movie, Will Ferrell? Ricky Bobby Jesus, he's, uh, what was the name of that movie? Uh, Talladega Nights, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Legend of Ricky Bobby, it was a good movie. But in the movie, one of the things he does is he prays. He says, I want to pray, and I'm going to butcher it, but he basically says, I want to pray. I, I want to pray to little eight-pound, six-ounce, golden fleece diapers, little cute as, a, you know, cute as a button, couldn't hurt a fly, baby Jesus. And we love that Jesus because that's a Jesus we can control. But as they say in the movie, he was a grown man. He had a beard. He grew up. And moreover, as the scriptures tell us, he holds the universe together with the word of his power. Why is your nose above your mouth right now? Because Jesus Christ, the king and creator of the universe, is causing atoms to work the way that they do. Why is it that we don't just see absolute chaos in the created order? Because God is holding it all together by the word of his power. And Jesus says some things that we don't usually like to hear. Uh, listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Wait, I thought Jesus was nice. What's he saying? He is nice, and he's nicely reminding us of his omniscience and his power and his glory. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There are so many things to be afraid of. Have you guys ever heard, um, you guys know this statement, um, uh, there's nothing to fear except fear itself, a little crap. I mean, listen, there are so many things that are bigger than me that I fear. I fear ISIS. I fear uh, cancer. A, a friend of mine, Kirk Rolls, just had his bladder removed because there was cancer in it, and he's also got leukemia. And that scares me. I worry about that. It's completely outside of my control. I fear many things that are greater than me. I fear my enemies. You know what I never fear? 
fear itself. I never wake up at 3 a.m. going, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to fear. <laughs> right? There's always an object to my fear, and it's always something bigger than me, something that can hurt me or destroy me or someone that I love. And here Jesus in Matthew says, don't fear those who can just kill the body. Do you see how he says it? Who can who just do that? That's what I'm afraid of, bro. Like, I'm afraid of the things that can kill me or the people that I love. And he says, don't, don't fear those who can only kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What's he saying? You're afraid of something small. You should really be afraid of something big, something truly ominous. How is it that Christians cannot fear martyrdom? How is it that, that believers can, can look at death in the eye and say, I have no fear of you? It's because they fear that which is greater than death. They fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Expand your mind and think about that which can truly destroy you. It's the king and creator of the universe. And that idea of a cosmic king, a cosmic creator who holds all things together, that idea is horrifying until we see that that God took on flesh and allowed himself to be destroyed. So check this out. Here in uh, the text in verse four, he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So in prayer, we go to the Lord with a sober assessment of reality, with an honest, raw expressions of our feelings, with a reminder of who God is, and we remind ourselves who God is in prayer in this way. Look at what he says. You have answered me, verse four, you have, uh, he has answered me from his holy hill. That's interesting language. Why does he take us into geography? He's saying the Lord answered me, like I cried out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me, but he specifically says what? Did you guys catch it? Where did, where did the Lord answer him from? His holy hill, right? Isn't that weird? Yeah, like, bro, that's weird, okay? Like, who cares where the Lord is answering you from? Well, I think David's doing something very specific here. He's, he's locating God uh, in, in this uh, imagery here. He's locating God in, in this place called his holy hill. And this, this is an idea that runs throughout the scriptures, the, the holy hill or the mountain of the Lord, right? And it's meant, to, uh, it's meant for us to see uh, God as dominant, but also God as imminent. And many times, what, uh, th there was an actual geographic location that many would say, okay, that's the holy hill. And it was this language of Zion or Mount Zion or uh, something we might be more familiar with, which is Jerusalem. You guys ever heard the language of the temple mount? Okay, the mount of the Lord. Okay, so you have this idea uh, that, that, that God has kind of this, this mountain, right, kind of this spiritual place that he dwells, but also that he's made himself known on this mountain here physically, geographically on earth, the hill of the Lord, uh, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And what's fascinating to me is this, and I don't think David knew this, but we know it, that the Lord has answered all of our cries of distress and pain from his holy hill. 
He has answered all of our cries from his holy mountain. You see, it was 2,000 years ago in space-time history that God took on flesh and walked out of the city to a mountain or a hill called Golgotha. And there he was crushed. And so instead of breaking the teeth of all of us, he allowed his body to be crushed and broken. Instead of rejecting all of us out of hand, instead of forsaking all of us, he allowed himself to be forsaken as he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, I want you to see that in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our anger and our rage, when we cry out to God, we have a sober assessment of reality. We look pain and fear right in the eyes and we express ourselves rawly to God. Before we ask the question, is this right or wrong of me to feel? We just say, God, this is how I feel. And then we remind ourselves who God is. And part of who God is, as our triune God, is God has taken on flesh. God has answered our cries of distress. He There is no pain that you feel that he is unfamiliar with. Uh, let me say it like this. When you and I pray, we pray to a God who knows firsthand what it feels like. You say, God, I feel betrayed. He says, yeah, I know what that feels like. You say, God, I feel abused. I know what that feels like. God, I feel abandoned. I know what that feels like. You see, the scriptures teach us something fascinating, that in Christ we have both a sovereign God and a suffering God. And when we pray in the midst of our pain, we pray to one who knows how we feel. This is not an ambiguous sky fairy who's going to shower us with goodies and treats. This is a God who walks with us. We remind ourselves who God is is in the midst of our prayer. In the midst of our pain, we say, Lord, you have answered me from your holy hill. He left his throne. He walked the hill of the skull, allowing his body to be crushed, allowing himself to be forsaken for you and for me. Now, one of the things that's fascinating is this, that in all other worldviews, this is exponentially more unique than anything we see. Dorothy Sayers, who was an author in the uh, mid-1900s, says this. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it was all worth the while. When you and I pray in our pain, we pray to one who knows what it feels like and who has the power to comfort and to heal. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he says in verse 8. Now, I want you to check this out, how he ends the prayer. Okay. 
So if you have your Bibles uh, open or whatever, I'd encourage you to look. Look at that last verse, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on, now, TV timeout. Uh, we're so selfish, specifically you people, but um, I'm working on it. Um, right? We're so selfish, aren't we? Because just check your prayer life. God, I, 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 me, 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 I, you know, I'm important. It's just it's me. It's I need this. I'm angry. I'm this. I'm that. I'm the other thing. And that's good to, for us to express how we feel and all those things. But I want you to see how he ends the prayer. Okay, so up until this point in time, what's he said? God, my son is trying to kill me. And he's got lots of people who are trying to get me dead so he can take over the throne. Sober assessment of reality. How do I feel? I'm afraid. I'm angry. I feel pain. Okay. Sober assessment of reality, honest, raw feed, uh, uh, feedback of his feelings. Then he reminds himself of who God is. God, you're my sustainer. You're my strength. You're my salvation. You sustain me. You, you have answered me from your holy hill. And now finally, there's this like what next component to prayer. Like what am I going to do about this next? What's going to happen next? And I want you to see what David says here at the end of his prayer. What would be the most natural thing to say at the end of the prayer? God, thanks for keeping me alive. Peace out. Right? God, uh, I, just be with me, me. Pay attention to me. Focus on me, God. Right? That would probably be the most natural. That would be definitely how I pray, especially if my son's trying to kill me and my four-year-old has tried. <laughs> unknowing, uh, I think unknowingly so far, but I have my doubts. Um, it would be easy in this circumstance to be self-focused in the prayer, but listen to how he ends. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on me, the king? No. What's he say? Your blessing be on who? Do you guys have it? What's he say? Your people. This is fascinating to me. In the process of his praying, David has, has moved from introspection to thinking of others. He has moved, something has happened to where he's not only thinking about his imminent demise, but now he's also thinking, Lord, bless your people. Bless, bless all of the, uh, these others. It's interesting, even Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Well, that sucks, right? I mean, have you ever actually tried that? It's awful. Because they're your what? They're your enemies, Yeah. And what's fascinating is in the process of praying for your enemies, oftentimes that category shifts and you no longer become enemies. For me, at least, they just go back to being family members at Christmas. But, <laughs> but look at what David does. Something has happened in his heart to cause him to go from inward focus to outward focus. And I want you to see that in the life of a follower of Christ, this transformative power works its way in us as we submit to the Lord in prayer to where even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our fear, even in the midst of our anger, we are able to say, Lord, bless the other. Be with the other. Be with the others. You know this, don't you, that um, pain, we, we often use our pain to self-justify selfish behavior. Right? We, you and I, but more you than me, we use our times of pain and anguish to justify 
selfishness. And here, because of the gospel, we see this wonderful reality that transforms the inwardly focused heart to one of blessing for the other. In the midst of your pain, do not fall into the trap of becoming solely focused on yourself. Rather, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our praying our pain, let us remember the pain and the anguish of others. Let us remember to pray for the blessing of the other, you see. Here we see this beautifully in David, even in the midst of his distress. And finally, verse five. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Rest. In the midst of our pain and our fear, and our anxiety especially, we can, in our, we can get all worked up and in our fury we can find that we exhaust ourselves. And I don't believe that what the scriptures are teaching here is kind of a laissez-faireness or kind of a, a live and let live and it doesn't matter-ness to it or a passive approach. Rather, I think what's happening here is that we are being called to pray to face our reality, to express ourselves to God, to remind ourselves of who he is, and then rest in who he is. We have the Lord. What can be taken from us? We have the Lord. What can people do to me? We have the Lord. What is death but a new beginning? We have the Lord present even in the midst of my suffering. We have the Lord who knows what it feels like and who stands victorious over the grave, ready to give peace to all who call on the name of the Lord. Friends, as we pray first, let us bring our reality, our feelings to the Lord and let us remind ourselves of who he is and humbly ask that he bless those around us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we give you thanks for who you are, for the many ways that you provide for us and bless us. Lord, I'm thankful for this church family that you have woven PBC together, that you continue to bless them with resources, talent, and vision for this area of town. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless this church family. Specifically, Lord, I pray that you would give them eyes to see people as you see them, to be a blessing to those in their spheres of influence, to one another, that their love and their unity would showcase the gospel in such radical ways that many in this city would be drawn to you. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and awesome name, amen.